Yeah, so apropos of our show topic today, I go out there to deal with the fact that our studio picks up everything happening in the house and tell the people to please keep the noise to a dull roar. And I find that they're playing Dungeon. Ah. So that was the source of the of the commotion. Okay. Well, you know, at least they're occupying themselves with a board game. Welcome to the Play Ed Podcast, where we explore cultivating connections through play. Hello and welcome. I am your host, Laura. And I'm Chris. And you are listening to the Play Ed Podcast, where we explore cultivating connections through play. So, we've been talking the last couple of episodes about... Um, play and especially playing with younger children. I had alluded in a previous episode to wanting to talk about how I adapt Dungeons and Dragons. And you had a listener ask you a question. I did. I did. Um, uh, one of the guys I've known for many, many years um, through one of the online forums and then we met uh, in person a few times at a gaming convention we go to and so forth had asked for some advice on adapting role-playing games in general, Dungeons & Dragons specifically, um, to younger kids. So I have been playing or running D&D games since the late 1980s when I learned to play at summer camp, um, right at the tail end of the Satanic Panic and right as second edition AD&D was rolled out by TSR. I played all through high school, I played all through college, I quit when I went to grad school the first two times, thinking that, you know, now that I was married, I had to be an adult and put away fun hobbies and stuff, and after a few years of misery, my wife looked at me, bless her to this day, and she said, you need a hobby. Yeah. Go find some gamers and play. So... That was the context for me getting back into Dungeons & Dragons in the mid-2000s. It was around 04, 05, maybe 06-ish. And I very quickly realized that the, the, the widely available version of the rules at that time and most of the subsequent ones that Wizards of the Coast have put out weren't really a game I enjoyed playing. But through the magic of the internet, I found out-of-print copies of the books that I loved, and I found um, you can now download them all legally in PDF through DriveThruRPG. Um, and there are what are called retro clones, which is a lot of the old rules um, put in a new artistic package. Uh, and so I play mostly with the rules that people in my age cohort grew up with, that were popular between about 1977-78 and the, let's say we can put a cap on it around 87-88. Okay. So that that decade of um, rules and supplements and modules, there's a lot of new stuff coming out. Um, and all that's kind of preamble to, to give you a sense of what, what I'm talking about. And we can put some links in the show notes um, to where you can find the retro clones and where you can find... Uh, either print-on-demand or um, digital, uh, licensed digital uh, copies of these older rule sets uh, that I prefer playing with and that I find easier to adapt to children. 
Um, so as for children, um, I started playing D&D with our oldest, who is now a teenager, when he was about five or six years old. He wanted to play D&D. I had found a face-to-face -face group and a gaming convention, um, the North Texas Role-Playing Game Convention. And I hadn't gone to game conventions before that, but long and short, I... Um, I started playing a lot more, and my son wanted to be part of that part of my life. So I sat down with the first edition AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide, which has a whole section in it that allows you to randomly roll up a dungeon. And you can use it as a solitaire game. It's got monster tables, it's got um, uh, essentially a logic tree based on uh, dice rolls. That allows you to map out a dungeon. It won't make a coherent dungeon. Um, and maybe I should back up. Dungeon is something you explore if you're playing Dungeons & Dragons. Other role-playing games have similar conceits. MMORPGs, if that's what you're more familiar with, have similar things too. You don't have a quest set up necessarily. But you've got an area to explore, opponents to fight, and treasures to collect. And... Without turning this episode into kind of a disquisition on role-playing games and differences across the last 50 years since the invention of the concept, I was able to play with my five- and six-year-old. He and I would roll up characters, and I'd keep track of everything because he was still learning to read, and he really couldn't write very well at the time. And But he could roll the dice. And he could roll the dice, and then I could draw the map, and he could see the effects of the dice rolls on the map as we mapped it out, and we had encounters, and I would let him take the lead. Did he want to try and talk to the monsters and negotiate? Did he just want to pick a fight? Um, you know, what did he want to do? How did he want to make the decisions? And so I would try and guide those decisions, because, you know, a five-year-old is, is going to want to, you know, decide the walls are silly putty or something like that, and... and that's fine if that's the kind of really open, almost Calvin Ball game you want to play, but I was a little more rigid at the time, so I kind of wanted to keep it within the realm of something recognizably D&D. But he and I played like that for a couple of years, and as he got older and as his younger siblings started growing up, everybody kind of wanted to play a little more. So we experimented with some board games that had fantasy role-playing elements. I'm thinking in particular Fantasy Flight Games Descent, which has tiles and it has plastic miniatures and it's really, really beautifully done. I just didn't find it a very satisfying game and with little kids, what I found is by the time you get all the pieces set up, they're bored and they've gone on to do something else. So I needed something that I could just kind of throw and go and what I kept coming back to were those earlier rule sets of D&D from the late 70s and the early to mid 80s. And, all right, well, let's strip this out and let's strip this out and let's strip this out. And you didn't have to strip out a whole lot before you had a game that was still fun. Through the gaming convention that I mentioned, the North Texas Role-Playing Game Convention, I met some folks down in Austin, Texas, uh, and around the country who were doing the same thing with their kids. We're all kind of in the same age cohort, a lot of us have similar interests. Um, I, I was kind of surprised that not all of us do the same thing for a living, but we've all got families and we all game with our families. Well, one of them, he took styrofoam containers and he turned them into terrain and he ran a kid's game at the convention one year. Uh, and my oldest and our um, uh, one of the middle boys played in that, and I still have pictures of it, and they had a blast. They were 
they were trying to rescue, I think it was a penguin princess, from an evil magic user who had stolen, he had stolen something special to the penguins. I don't remember if it was a sword or a princess or, or there was a MacGuffin. And the penguins asked the PCs, the characters, to go defeat the evil wizard and save the thing. And then, so he had, there, there, were, there were miniature figures that the, the players could manipulate, and there was terrain. And so they would load onto a little piece of styrofoam, and as it was slid across the table, my friend said, you know, the penguins are on one end of it, and they're paddling away so that they're propelling this ice flow to the, the, the frozen fortress of solitude that the evil wizard had. And they could go through the whole game, and it was very puzzle-oriented for young kids. You didn't need a literate child to play this game. You didn't need to know the rules of D&D. And a bunch of us were experimenting with writing simplified versions of the rules and stripping out all the stuff that, you know, can make it fun for an older person, but is very overwhelming to a new player regardless of what age they are. My kids had a blast, came home, begged for him to do it the next year. Life happened, he wasn't able to. It was a couple years later before he was able to do another one. Well, fast forward a few more years, we now have the sons of some of the guys who came to the first gaming convention. And I say guys because it's mostly men. There are some women. My wife shows up. Um, there are quite a few women and more getting involved. But at the time, it was primarily guys and their sons, their sons are, and in a couple of cases, daughters, are now running games at the convention, not just for other kids, but for adults. So you've got like a 12-year-old or a 14 or a 16-year-old running a game at which you have kids in their, you know, early to mid-teens all the way up to men in their 60s and 70s, all sitting at the table, all playing together, working well together. And watching that happen and watching that transformation in our own kids as they have now grown up and they can now sit at tables with adults and credibly play the game, assess risk, manage resources, do all and make good decisions, especially in a stressful situation, really helped me to appreciate the power of what role-playing games can do in terms of child development. Right. And we have a blast doing it. So this would probably be a great place to set up some definitions because I recognize some of our audience, whether they're finding us through the internet or they happen to know us in real life, have probably been playing Dungeons & Dragons or similar games as long as you have. But I also recognize that there's a portion that's probably more from our homeschooling side of life that may not have. So what is a role-playing game? It's a really, really good question. A role-playing game is a game in which a player takes the role, R-O-L-E, as in character in a play, of one unit within the game. So in a fantasy role-playing game like Dungeons & Dragons, you play a single character, and that character has certain attributes and abilities and equipment and works as part of a team to solve problems 
overcome obstacles, and hopefully survive to the end of the game session. And then you just do it. It's open-ended, and the victory conditions are survival and hauling treasure. There are other role-playing games. There was a really good Star Wars role-playing game um, that I played, and I know there's been a, a sort of a new version of that put out, where you play a character in the Star Wars universe. Um, the the roots of role-playing are in wargaming, where each player is controlling a small army or a unit of an army on terrain. Um, board wargaming, uh, miniatures wargaming, uh, where you've got the little metal figurines, usually meticulously painted, um, both historical and, and fantastic things like Warhammer and Warhammer 40K, or if you're doing Napoleonics or Revolutionary War, American Civil War, English Civil War, Ancients, um, where you control a unit. And back in the 60s, there were some war gamers up in the um, uh, area around Milwaukee and Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, Chicago, um, and they started asking, well, how did we come to control these armies? How do we have castles? Well, where did we start? And a very kind of American uh, self-made man, rags to riches kind of thing grew up. Well, we started as penniless adventurers with nothing to lose. And we did crazy things like go into dark smelly holes in the ground and fight horrible things that were there and take their treasure. And then we built up to be, you know, lords and ladies of our domains and have armies to command in order to fight these, these miniatures battles. Um, because at least from all my friends who've grown up in the northern Midwest have told me there's not a whole lot to do when there's 30 feet of snow on the ground outside, and it's miserable. Um, I prefer to live in warmer climes, but I still got pulled into this, um, this wonderful hobby when I was a teenager. So with role-playing, you're taking on a role, a character, and the actions of the character in the game are largely governed by what you want that character to do. Um, it's kind of like having a pawn in a normal board game, but there are more options and more elements to the game. Uh, and it's best played in a group. Um, there are solitaire versions, and a lot of, a lot of computer role-playing games work best as solitaire. Um, but face-to-face role-playing, and I've, I've, I've done it over... Um, internet technologies, I know some people are experimenting with maps and all. There are ways to collaborate online so that you can play the game, but it really shines when you get a group of people who come to know and trust each other as friends, face-to-face, -face, in the real world, and they sit around and they pretend to be other people for six or eight hours a week or every two weeks, and it, it, it's wonderful watching that bond of friendship develop. So to clarify, one of the things is that while fantasy role-playing games are one of the ones that we've played a lot of as a family, um, and that is where you've historically played most of yours, role-playing game is simply a game where you are taking on the role of a character with attributes and abilities, and then playing through scenario where they're offered challenges and you use dice to resolve those challenges. Dice or tables, yes. Um, I can think of uh, 
somewhat lighter on the on the mechanics for resolution, but if you've ever done something like a murder mystery dinner theater or um uh oh, I'm trying to think. I know there are a whole bunch of games that are basically role-playing games um that that uh that, that like there was Dallas, the 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 TV show was really popular in the 80s. There was a Dallas role-playing game where you could play one of the characters on the TV show Dallas and there were scenarios set up and you could have interpersonal conflict and you could kind of act out the soap opera in your living room with your neighbors. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the ones that you played, it was definitely on the more sophisticated end and I do not know how you would adapt it down for younger players. Um, But there was a game based on all of the swashbuckling Age of Adventure um, stories. Flashing Blades. Yes, that was a very Three Musketeers, Westward Ho, um, swords and duels and intrigue and... That one's actually pretty easy to adapt to little ki- to playing with little kids. As I said, I, I that's another one I adapted and played with my uh, oldest, who's now a teenager, but at the time uh, was only uh, eight or nine. Yeah. And the thing about that is you read the Three Musketeers books, uh, you read some of the Zorro stories, not all of them are safe for kids, um, you know, and, and you you watch swashbuckling movies, you watch the old Errol Flynn movies, you watch, you know, the sea, uh, it was a Seahawk. Yes. Um, and the, the Robin Hood movies, and, um, you know, where, where it's lots of daring do and swinging on ropes and swash-topped boots and, you know, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. looking all manly and... And, and, you know, with that pencil-thin mustache, and, of course, now I want to play Jimmy Buffett. Um, but, of course, that would be an interesting role-playing game, playing Jimmy Buffett. Anyway, and, and so, like, Flashing Blades, a lot of role-playing games are easy to play with kids if they buy into the concept. They want to be musketeers. Great, you pretend to be musketeers. To some degree, a role-playing game is simply a slightly more mature version of a kid's game of Let's Pretend where you play cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians or pirates and uh, Royal Navy, I guess. I, I, I don't know. We, we would just play pirates and we didn't have any law forces after us. Uh, but what sets a role-playing game apart from just a, kid, a little kid's game of Let's Pretend is that you've got a structured mechanic for resolving conflict. And that way you don't have the argument of, no, you didn't kill the spider, I killed the spider. Well, you can have a, a referee... With a set of tables that says, all right, you're going to roll dice and you're going to say whether or not your sword hits. Right. And and that's the role of the, the in, in Dungeons and Dragons, it's called the Dungeon Master. A lot of people prefer judge or referee or administrator. One of the players elects, instead of playing a character in the game, to handle all the mechanics and so the appeal of computer role-playing games, especially the multiplayer component like MMORPGs, the computer is fulfilling that role. The developers build the assets, the maps, the quests, the treasures, the monsters, the NPCs that you can interact with, and you, the players, just get to log in and play. And the computer handles all the stuff in the background that a dungeon master is juggling at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, I, I had a, uh, I had a young man who worked for me several years ago. I was, um, I was running a support desk at a software startup and I had two face-to-face groups that I was running 
a game for. And I was running those different groups through the same um, set of maps and monsters and treasures. So they were they weren't playing with each other, but they were interacting in a shared imaginary environment. And so one group would go and loot one area and defeat certain monsters, and you know there would be there'd be there'd be evidence of their their being there. And I would make notes, and then I'd go run the game for the other group, and if they moved into that same area, they'd find that evidence, uh-huh. and vice versa. So it helped create for the, I don't know, it was about two dozen people over two different groups, kind of a shared living space and environment. It really helped them to um, get more immersed in the game and enjoying it. One of my employees, um, who I'd become friendly with, and had joined one of the groups, asked to play in the other group. I was like, yeah, sure. So I picked him up and we went out and 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 we played and we'd been doing that two or three times and he um he turned to me one day, he said, So how much do you have? And I said, What do you mean? He said, Well, in a video game, the programmers can build a game and they'll build assets for a program for a game, and it might give an estimated 50 hours of gameplay or 80 hours of gameplay or 150 hours of gameplay. And he had seen the materials I carried, the maps and the the binder in which I kept all of the monster and treasure information and all my notes and stuff. And he's like, how much do you have? And I said, as far as material, how much, how long can I spin the game out? And he said, yeah. I said, with the materials I have prepared right now, I could probably run eight hours a day, six days a week for the next two to three years and not come close to exhausting what I already have prepared. And he was just blown away because no programmer, no game development company could put that kind of resource effort into developing a game Mm -hmm. by necessity of the costs of developing the assets. I said, and... I wouldn't leave it static. I'm going to keep developing and modifying things as different groups play through this environment. So it's going to keep growing. So I can keep it going until I can't run a game any longer. And that led him to just kind of sit back and it it really just blew him away because for the first time in his very short life, um, he was very, very young, he realized, I mean, he was an adult, but he was still a very young adult. He was really just wowed at what kind of potential there was for imaginative play that could go on forever without the constraints of programmers having to build and rig new creatures or design new assets or have new music composed. And then you've got a bug tested and all the things that go into developing video games. Mm -hmm. So as much as he enjoyed the video games and he continued playing them, and I have no objection with that. They've never really interested me because I'd rather sit down at the table and run for a group of people and then just keep going. Mm -hmm. So we have skirted around the idea of adapting to younger players, but I think where you really started systematically with our own family doing this, not just like with one or two children, but for an actual full table was when our oldest son decided that he wanted for his birthday to have you run a game for his friends. Yes. Um, he was, I don't know, was that his 12th or 13th birthday? 
I would have to go and look back in my Facebook messages to check on that one. Yeah, at some point he decided that what he wanted for his birthday was to have his friends over and for me to run a D&D game for him. And I said, okay. So we arranged that, and everybody had a really good time, including all those people who had never played before. Um, one of the players wanted to be... Oh, I forget what character from... It was right around the time Guardians of the Galaxy, the movie, came out. Um, because one of them wanted to be a character from Groot. He wanted to be Groot, or at least called Groot. And I was like, well, yeah, you can play a tree. And, you know, I I, I was yeah, sure, whatever. And um, our oldest at the time wanted... I think he wanted to be Star-Lord. Um... I mean, he had a different name, but he he wanted to be um, oh, who's the actor? Chris, whatever whatever that 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 character was in in Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm sorry, I. You know, it's a Chris. Every Hollywood actor played a superhero is a Chris. I could have been one of them. I could have been a contender. Um. <laughs> anyway, and then. As we set up to play, one of the really little kids in the house, who was only like four or five at the time, was like, I want to play. And I'm like, okay, sure. He's like, I want to be a centaur. I'm like, you can be a centaur, sure. And that's when you had the bright idea, recognizing that children do not do a good job with abstract imagination. You said... Everyone go grab a Lego figure. Or a Playmobil. Or a Playmobil to represent your character. We'll put a big map board on the table, and that way you can see roughly where your characters are in relation to each other as we explore this thing. And that's where the centaur... The centaur was named Little Pony. No, Lil Pony. Like like My Lil Pony. Yes. And and that centaur had many, many adventures. He was a trans-dimensional pony who phased in and out with the attention span of a four-year-old um, and would occasionally strike a blow or get hit in combat and had no interest in the treasure at all. Um, but it allowed my our, our four-year-old to join in. With the older kids. And the older kids were enchanted because it helped signal to them this really is anything goes. That whatever they throw out there, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna say, it, go, I'm not gonna say, no, we're, we're not doing that. That's not part of this game. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the best things I did uh, in terms of helping me understand how to be a better game master, whether it's running and adapting board games or running and adapting role-playing games is I did some improv work. And one of the, the, the fundamental rules of most of the games that you learn to play in improv are is, is called yes and. Mm-hmm. That when somebody throws something out, you don't shut it down by saying no. You either say yes and, you agree and amplify, or you say yes but, and you agree and redirect. I find that works very well in business. I find that works very well in education. I find that works very well in gaming. I find it works very well in life. And so if you're going to look to adapt a game, any game, board game, card game, role-playing game, whatever, you've got to go into it with the attitude of yes and. 
And one of the things that makes that work is that particularly with children who always add an element of chaos to a game because they're going to do things you do not expect. And that's some of the fun of it. You will get so much more creativity when you're not locked into people who have read only the same few books and that and only the same few movies and their imagination has almost become stunted as they've got a, a feedback loop of ideas of what the game's about. Children will come in and they won't figure out that Dora the Explorer somehow doesn't belong in Dungeons and Dragons. Right. And so Dora the Explorer tropes will enter in and become part of that world and enrich it and make it bigger when suddenly you realize, you know, maybe that quest structure that you get in Dora actually kind of works and makes sense to most people. So Lil Pony did come to a sad end. There was a total party kill where all the PCs got wiped out. And my four-year-old sat back. And he's like, Lil Pony's dead? I said, that's what it looks like. And he said, okay, I'll create another character. I'll be Batman. Batman, I think, has lived. That's because Batman, like Lil Pony, had trans-dimensional phasing. So he was in battles when he wanted to be and not in battles when he didn't want to be. Um, and and I think he's basically been retired. He sort of transcended the mortal coil. And, and now that, that four-year-old is now much older and increasingly wants a character sheet with a real character that he rolled up the dice and he did the tallying and he wrote it on the, the character sheet and that's his... And so we're getting to a point where we can play with more complexity. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he's got a younger sibling. Uh, the older ones are getting into their teens. They want a little more structure around the game, a little more consistency, a little more verisimilitude. But those birthday party games that started the, the first couple of adaptations turned into a regular group. And then as my boys recruited more of the, the kids they know through church... And through, through our social set, we grew and grew and grew. And now when we get the group together, there's 20 people around the table. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of adults who bring their kids, uh, a couple of other dads that I've known for, for several years, uh, one of whom I gamed with in college. Um, they bring their kids. And then other people just drop their kids off. And we have age ranges from uh, almost five now. We have one turning five next week. To 17 years old, plus a couple of extra adults. Um, and, you know, we'll cook a spaghetti dinner and we'll play some music and the kids have some time to play with Legos. If the weather's pleasant, they run around the backyard with foam swords and Nerf guns and they play ball. And it becomes a social event. But we still get a solid six to eight hours of combing through a, a, a dungeon on, on a couple of ta folding tables set up in our living room, and I'm managing a party of 20. All right. So from that, I think I've got two things that really are at the heart of this. The f I'll give you both questions, and then you can address them in whatever order you think makes sense. Sounds fair. One of them is, what are the adaptations you make so that even the five-year-old can help with those elements of visualizing abstractions? What do you do... And what have you simplified with the younger players and then layering back in as they get older? Where do you want to start? How far do you want to strip down the rule set to make it accessible, but still fun in a coherent game? What do you layer back in and how? The other question is, how do you, 
as a referee manage a table with nearly 20 people at it and keep it moving? How do you keep track of all of those moving parts? Because I know that you've talked to several other people who've been gaming as long as you who imagine a table of more than eight people is overwhelming. Both really, really good questions. And actually your first one is like six questions. Um, Okay, so let me start with the abstraction level. So as we noted earlier, and as research has repeatedly borne out, young children, part of the hallmark, one of the hallmarks of young children is lack of an ability to do abstract thinking. It doesn't really develop, start to develop in humans until they hit adolescence. A lot of people don't really develop robust abstract thinking skills until their 20s or 30s. Some never develop them. It's part of why so many people struggle with math, music, um, even aspects of literature like poetry. It means dealing in abstractions. And it, and the ability, the ability or inability to work with an abstract concept can have a huge impact on your ability to learn another language, uh, engage in philosophical or theological thought and discourse, um, and, you know, solve problems in, in the workplace. Most of the work I make a living doing, how I support the family, is involves abstract thinking. Um, you have to make it concrete. You can't get around making it concrete. And what I found is even with adults, even playing with men 20 years older than I am, they delight in having some of those abstractions made concrete. Okay. So, for example, and this kind of plays into what are the adaptations I do to make it simple. I pull a lot of stuff out. At, at its most basic, you want to have a relatively simple map, especially while everybody's learning to map. If you have a lot of young kids, you need to draw that map out. Now, some people play with terrain and metal miniature figures. Um, we have some minis, but what we started with was just using Legos and Playmobiles because we had tons of them and little green army men. And um, so uh, tactile, you want some tactile pawn that represents each PC on the board. The board just needs to be like a sheet of plexiglass. Maybe you put like a, a, a one inch square grid underneath it or not. But I, I had use... a low-cost thought because we have a really nice uh, vinyl uh, grid map that we put and then we put plexiglass over and we use uh, dry erase markers on the plexiglass to do the mapping. But I realized that half of the uh, wrapping paper that you can buy now, now has, has got the grid on it. Grid on the underneath. So you could probably, if you were looking for a really low-cost entry level, put a... Just put some some extra Christmas wrapping paper down on the table. Yeah. Like a tablecloth. On the grid side. And that will give you a grid that you can draw on. And then throw away when you're done if you don't want to re- keep it. Um, you but could you- also just lay a whiteboard down. Mm-hmm. Um, plexiglass can get really expensive. Whiteboards are relatively cheap. Wrapping paper is really cheap. Yeah. Um, wrapping paper is not reusable. That's kind of your trade-off there. But basically, you just want something. And and don't get hung up on the grid or the size of the grid. What you want is a general representation, not a scale representation. Um, some kind of, of pawns or tokens or markers that will indicate the PCs. And use a different kind of pawn or token or marker to indicate monsters if they're fighting them. Sketch out the the, the general size of the, the room um, and, and as you describe it, as they get older, start teaching them to map, but keep the map simple. 10 foot wide corridors, 
30-foot square rooms, entrances at the cardinal points. Use directions like north, south, east, west. Underground, you don't know direction? That's fine. Little kids don't know that. You're helping teach them north, south, east, west. You're teaching them how to read and create a map. Mm-hmm. Map skills have largely been lost as we become dependent on GPS. Here's an easy way to reintroduce that in a way that they wouldn't suspect you're teaching them something on a Saturday while hanging out with them. So make the abstract concrete. Draw out the dungeon for them. Give them playing pieces to move around as if it were a board game. Um, As you introduce more complicated things like consumable items... um, You know, you don't have flashlights, so you'll use torches or lanterns. And torches burn up, lanterns consume oil, um, rope. uh, Anybody who's read Lord of the Rings knows Sam is always going on about how he should have had a bit of rope, and and he would regret not having a bit of rope. And then he gets a bit of rope from the the elves in um, Lothlorien as a parting gift. And that's wonderful. Oh, no, he gets the the box of salt with the seeds. Um, the, The rope they just pack for them. Um... I take um, a friend of mine uh, who runs an adult group in uh, New Orleans gave me this this idea. He uses um, either little glass beads uh, or poker chips, mini poker chips, to represent food, water, oil, torches. Um, he'll take matchsticks or toothpicks. Matchsticks, he cuts the, the phosphorus head off, so it's just the, the wooden stick. Um, you can do this with toothpicks also. Um or, or a wooden dowel to represent arrows. Um, he'll take a piece of like butcher's twine, kitchen twine, and he'll cut it into little five inch lengths. And that and each inch is fifty is ten feet, so that a five inch length of butcher's twine represents a fifty foot length of rope. And you give these things to your players. Mm-hmm. So that as they use the consumable item, like, oh, okay, your torches are burned out. Everybody hand me a torch token. Oh, you don't have any more torch tokens? Okay, you don't have any light. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not a problem because your other people around you have light. You you help teach them to manage the scarce resources, not by throwing them all at them at once, but one new thing at a time. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to read the group. It may be that they're in the middle of just getting a handle on basic mechanics, but you start with basic mechanics, you make them as concrete as possible, and then you layer in further complications as they grow in age and experience. So resource management is a complication that you don't want to start with. And so when I start really young players, when I start new players, even if they're adults, I don't track rations, I don't track water, I don't track torches or oil, I don't track arrows or bullets if it's a modern game and they've got guns. But I also don't necessarily apply that across the board. So, like, the 17 and the 16 and the 13 and the 12, the older kids can handle those complications. So I make them track those. The middle kids, uh, I play it by ear. The younger kids, no, whatever. You know, They never have to reload, they never have to buy more, their armor never breaks, their their weapons never break. Because the rules should be fun, and for a younger child, that isn't a complication that's adding fun. It doesn't add a challenge that enhances the fun, it just makes the game frustrating. And so, that's really where I want to go. You have to make it concrete, and you have to follow the rule of fun. Is it cool? 
If the kid says, I want to jump on the chandelier and swing across the room and fly through the air and kick the guy in the face and then I pull out my sword. Okay, that's several actions. Let's have that happen over the course of this battle. But you don't just sit there and say, well, we have to roll the dice to see if you make the leap check and then you need a dexterity check to find out if you successfully swing on the chandelier. No! Follow the rule of cool. Did Douglas Fairbanks do it? Did Errol Flynn do it? Then do it. Yes, no problem. Okay, so you land on the guy, you kick him down, you go to pull out your sword, and then you let it go from there. And so you basically say that with a younger player, use rule of cool, because what's going to happen is that some point in their teens, later teens, there's going to be a point where they say, you know what would be cool? Is this even possible? And then that's where they'll start wanting to layer in Am I, do I have the dexterity to make it happen? Because for them, that opportunity to, you know, miss hitting the chandelier and fall into the floor flat on their face, at that point, finally is cool. Right. Right. Because it opens up, so, well, well, what happens? Not, not accomplishing the cool stunt, but having a pratfall that everybody can laugh at becomes part of the fun. But it's not fun for a younger player. And it's not fun for a new gamer who's still struggling to figure out what is this thing I'm trying to do. I don't want to make a mistake and and, and everybody gets killed. And, and, and I've known so many players who had miserable experiences gaming as teenagers or adults because they sat down at a table and the, the, the game master, the dungeon master, the referee, whatever, was... A, was was really uptight about this stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and that defeats the whole purpose of playing games, which again is having fun. Hello everyone, Laura here. So this turned out to be a monster of an episode. I've gone ahead and split it into two parts. I will go ahead and air the second half next week. Until then, we hope you've enjoyed today's conversation. All of the games that I have mentioned, I will make sure are in the show notes for y'all. And for now, we would love to hear from you. Please write to Chris and I at playedpod at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at playedpod or on Facebook at playedpodcast. Please tell us your thoughts. Let us know if there's any other questions you have about adapting role-playing games for children. And until next time, thanks for listening. spaces out. The problem is I don't know what you end up editing out and what you decide is amusing and to leave in. See, I could take that bit, whisper it as it is, and stick it as an outtake at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, you could. And you probably will.